0: So, the title for this talk is No Road Maps. Let me take a moment first to put this talk in the context of the previous one. I'm I'm not implying that you need to have listened to those, most of you have, of course, but some may may not, I don't know. you don't need to have listened to those, but still, since you've, most of you have heard them, um, there's a continuity. The first talk on Friday was called Getting, and it had to do with uh, how in getting something we fabricate the getter, the one who gets. And the uh, talk yesterday had to do, was... Entitled The Journey and the Goal, and was a plea for not contrasting these two things but seeing that they are one, that there's no duality of journey and goal. I, I, in other words, the two talks that meant to shift the attention from the goal the end of the road if you wish to the journey itself to restore the balance of these two things in doing that the key question is are we ready willing, capable to be present for the journey, not for an imitation of the journey, not for a simulacrum of a person, of a, of a journey, but for the journey itself. Are, are we ready to look at the journey and not just at a roadmap? no road maps if I may try to read Raquel's thoughts (laughs) sorry about that I can imagine her thinking look who's talking (laughs) I have a a couple of boxes big boxes full of maps Okay. Of course, you know, some maps can be useful when driving. I'm sure that many of you will very appropriately have a map to guide them to come here. Sure, and of course there are even electronic devices now on the cars, whatever they are. I mean magically they tell you when to turn and things like that. But, but I take maps until very recently, i take maps on a, on a train trip, you know, <laughs> just making sure that I know where I was. Oh, or at least that <laughs> the guy didn't make a, a mistake somewhere. An airplane. I, I have all kinds of airplane maps. I mean, it may have been use, useful at 9 on, if I weren't, one of those on 9-11 flights. And <laughs> <but> <laughs> you know. Anyway, uh, what, it's clear to me that's not only my obsession. I mean, nowadays, of course, in, in the cabin of the airplane, there often is a, a little map for which positions you tell you moment by moment where you are on the map. The, the issue is that the more we are present with the map, the more we are absent with the journey. And of course, the, the, the map on the cabin of the airplane it's a, this is a typical example of that. You're looking at that and not out the window. And not only that, but of course, maps are necessarily an oversimplification of the. Our daughter Celia was uh, sharing with me recently that uh, when she and her husband-to-be, Sergio, they were quite young then, decided to bicycle from Paris to Sicily, that's a long trip, they got a, a bunch of maps to find the way. Problem is, the maps didn't depict the mountains and the Alps were there. <laughs> they started showing up. <laughs> but it's not just in these gross depictions that the maps fail. The maps fail in all the life-living details of the trip. You know, I was doing a a one-month retreat at the Forest Refuge, some two hours away from here, um, until a few weeks ago. And uh, so, in order to drive I had to dismantle a little bit my my mind, my meditator's mind, otherwise it gets dangerous, you know. Um, but um, anyway, there I was with this mixture of minds, really, driving home, and I, I look at the sign, town of Ware. <clears throat> Hope I'm pronouncing it right, but W-A-R-E, and uh, and my. Ordinary mind says to myself, "Yeah, this is where you turn left. Don't forget." And my retreat mind says, "Hey, wait a minute! There's a town, a real town, is full of people. <laughs> I mean, there's more to where than just turning left. A <laughs> little detail. Perhaps it doesn't come across so well telling it to you, but it was so vivid." because it came from inside my mind, telling hey, hey, look at what you're doing. Maps are just an example, only the tip of the iceberg, of the very many props that we use to navigate with the semblance of safety through the fabric of life. One very prominent one for some is ideology, belief systems, fundamentalisms, if you wish. Sure, that's that's quite complex, but the fabric of life is full of a lot of other little trivial things, you know, like that. Well, Oh wow, you know, this is all over kind of thing. I mean, schedule, schedule seems to give us some safety. It's not meant for that, but can be used that way. All oh, there is a reckoning of time. This is the time. Hey, this is a time. I'm here at this time. you know, everything is working well. But more. Frequently, the not the famous list of things to do and crossing them on. And, you know, where am I on that list of things to do? This list, list of things that I've accomplished sometimes that we, we go over in our mind. We don't write it down, it doesn't it, it, it look too obvious, but we do it in our minds list of things we possess, oh, you know, yeah, it, it lingers there. Yeah, 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 okay, but, but we use them as structures, that's what I'm saying, just like the album of, of photographs, you know, a family album of photographs. It's okay, but it can be used as a prop. To sustain us. So, drawing the family tree. Maybe okay to, to know, you know, where my family came from, sure, but but the tree and, and holding on to it, yeah, this is me, you know. And of course, uh, computers that store all kinds of information. And uh, and m- more pervasive perhaps is uh, handheld devices, you know, like uh, they're, they're appropriate practical, but they become part of the roadmap. And again, like the roadmap, it can be useful, but it also can be a clinging device. Like you know I'm thinking of the blackberries and palm pilot and I mean, uh, I'm sure there are many others with many other names, and even the cell phones do that, uh, iPhones, whatever. So, they, they carry this burden of providing electronically, at the push of a button, this structure. Structure, sure, organizing calendar. So, hey, yeah, my day is fine, full of stuff. List of tasks to do. You you press buttons and they give you that. In fact, um, our daughter Nora, who's very good at using that and very appropriately, she she uses it well. You know, Thanksgiving she was showing me pressing various buttons, more than I can remember now. Memo pads, too. Yeah. But. But then again, she <laughs> says to me, "Well, you know, if you run out of things to do, you press this other button, button. That's video games. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no chance that you'll be left just there, you know, in the middle of the journey, by yourself. So that's what I mean by roadma- roadmaps." Oh, yes, and then, you know, uh, uh, just, just to add a few, couple of items to the list. Bank account. Get a look at our bank account. It does have a feeling of safety there. List of addresses. For some, that becomes very valuable. By the way, these things too are accessible through this handheld devices. So all these records, like the maps, in a more pervasive way, become a replacement for reality. That's the problem, not that they are available, but that we take them as the full reality of things. They take over from the real. They become a substitute for life. And just like the maps omit the, the real setting, the real intimacy our address book, too. is just uh, purely this person, that person. Huh? No, no intimacy there. Nor, in fact, does a bank account tell us all the horrible things that are happening on behalf of our investments. But then we go for the grids precisely because of that, because they are clean of the complications and of the volatility of real life. No wonder that we are so apprehensive that at some point the grid may go. Of course, with computers, if we are careful enough, all kinds of devices to back up the data. So we back up the data so the computer breaks down. We still have the records. But the grid that sustains us, which appears to be outside, is really more fundamentally hardwired in here, in in our mind. And, I can tell you from first-hand experience, it inevitably gets damaged with age. So, when this happens, since we don't have, as far as I know, any backup devices for the brain, Interesting, hey, a little thing you attach here. (laughs) So, when you need to, when we lose our our memory, hey, let me see. Oh, yes, how are you? (laughs) Carol, Carol, is it Carol? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know those names and we forget. You may have picked that up in me at times, I'm sure. There are small things so-called senior moments, but there are much more acute forms of this breakdown, like, for instance, Alzheimer's or dementia, and they become a total abomination. There's no tolerance for that in ourselves, Or in others, I I like the way John Kabat-Zinn, was many of you know, is a a meditation teacher. Um, Recounts in his recent book the deterioration of the mind of his father, um, a very a prom- very prominent biochemist whom I had the pleasure of not only knowing but uh, interacting with in my work as a biochemist myself. And so I visit him in at Columbia Presbyterian uptown Manhattan, where he used to work. He's dead now. And um, and he was also working at the NIH. So he commuted back and forth, and John tells... His name was Alvin Cabot, and, and John tells of Alvin having lunch one day and telling the person he was having lunch with, sorry, I, I have to leave to catch a plane to go to New York. Problem is that this conversation was taking place in New York. You know, maybe a little thing, but that was a harbinger of things to come. I, I wouldn't be, I mean, this could happen to me, I'm sure, state, sure. Yeah. Um, and so then he wouldn't recognize uh, his wife or his children amazingly John reports that when he heard the voice over the phone absolutely there was direct total recognition so it's, it's not that the person has disappeared it's simply that the, the green grid that supports them is not functioning the way it used to over 30 years ago I had this sort of difficulty in connecting with my father who was uh, becoming kind of a bit incoherent and his mind would ramble into irrational territory and I couldn't take it I was terrified so much so that I I spaced out my visits to him he lived, I lived in New York he lived in Maryland at the time with my sister and, and my mother and um, I just uh, couldn't take that kind of look into an unmapped, the unmapped territory of his mind Well, at least I couldn't read his map, his map had changed. And and I very much regret that uh, at one time he was ill and uh, he died unexpectedly and I wasn't there. And so, I mean, I, I know very well the nature of that aversion to the absence of a map even in the mind of somebody else. And and Alzheimer is indeed a very very aversive condition. We have great aversion to Alzheimer. I was reading that there's uh, four and a half million people in this country diagnosed with Alzheimer's. They spend over a billion dollars a year in medications that have very questionable effect. A billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's absolutely true that there are complications when people have Alzheimer's, they cannot uh, fend for themselves. But our abomination of the condition has to do not so much with that, but the fact that they have gone off the grid, that they have gone off the map of conventional thought of, be- of behavior and behavior. And what I would like to suggest On the basis of my own experience and my own inability to connect with my father is that we do use contact with people who are losing the grid of the mind, if you wish. I mean, the ordinary grid. They have other grids, I'm sure. And and discover something about our own willingness to step out of uh, safety as well. So, how do we live outside the grave? Share something from the New York Times magazine. It's a several years old article, but I think quite by, quite powerful to me anyway, by Steve Gettinger. He okay. says. Mom died of Alzheimer's yesterday. As I sat by her hospital bed, watching her body slowly lose its color, a blasphemous thought struck me in many ways. Her disease had been a blessing. It had been 16 years since she first came home with a new unspellable diagnosis and a warning from her doctor that the disease might progress the way a marble falls off a table. But for my mother, it progressed the way a balloon wafts away into the sky. There she was. Still reading Karl Reiner and Anais Nin, but already forgetting to put salt in her stroganoff. Soon it was salt added to the morning coffee. Then, not knowing Christmas from the 4th of July. Eventually, she was unable to form words or remember my name. Yet, this regression had subtle rewards. As she she tiptoed back into infancy, she thought out the pleasure in little things, in the process. She became my Zen master. She'd clutch a tulip and scrutinize it for an hour. She ate strawberries with a child's wonder, each time for the first time. On one warm spring afternoon, I remember, she sat outside our house, blowing kisses to the azaleas and the dogwoods. Gradually, she dissolved entirely into sweetness, blowing kisses to me, to the sun, to the smi- smiling aides who take, took care of her. Further down, it says, she had fought depression since she was a young adult. In the thirties, they called it a nervous breakdown. Right? Remember. But Alzheimer lifted that weight. Arthritis had gnarled her fingers. Gradually, she ceased to notice. She once was scared of what others thought. Now, she trusted everyone. So, you see, there is life outside the grid. And these are, are the words of a Zen teacher, Blanche, Harman, uh, Blanche Hartman. She, she used to be the head of the San Francisco Zen Center. And she writes uh, in Buddha Dharma. Actually, she's asked... Various teachers asked about Alzheimer's. This is in the winter of last year. And these are two stories that she tells, just excerpts from it. There's a Dharma sister with whom I began practice in 1969. As her Alzheimer's progressed, she... As progresses, she bubbles over with childlike affection, greeting all old, old, old acquaintances with enthusiastic hugs and delighted expression of love. So, you see, there's, there's that aspect, that reality. Maybe it's good to get out of a grid. Maybe we can do both, you know, have the grid on one side and get out on the other. The other example she gives is about Maha Gosananda, a Cambodian teacher, uh, who, who has since died. I think, after she wrote this. The last time I saw him was at a large Dharma teaching gathering at Spirit Rock, which which I also attended, by the way. He clearly seemed to be affected by some kind of senile dementia. When I approached him to pay my respects, he was sitting alone, smiling broadly. As I came closer, I was overwhelmed by the palpable physical experience of him, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around him without limit, as it says in the Metra Sutra. I mentioned that I was at that uh, retreat center, and I'm... talked about this briefly at another retreat, I remember. I mentioned that I was at that center because it is so emblematic of the road map. Mahagosananda was in the same building complex where I was. He had a room, I had another room, others had other rooms. He was constantly getting lost and he had no way of finding his room by trying to orient himself, so he'd stick his head in everybody's room, sorry... (laughs) (laughs) sorry... (laughs) and uh, we also had the privilege of having these little informal groups of sharing in the midst of this Big important retreat with the Dalai Lama and all the big figures up there including Mahagosananda who was featured as a major figure. Um, and uh, But he could never find his room, his uh, group, so he often sort of wandered into into ours. He wasn't the group he was assigned to but It was a delight to hear him talk and teach. I mean, it made total sense. So, there you are. And, of course, you know, if if Gosananda had had a a map of the spirit rock center in his head, it would have been more convenient, sure. But much more important to me and to others is the transcending of the maps. That's what counts. That's the point I want to emphasize. We need to transcend to look beyond the maps, the grids that we are in the habit of constructing. Problem is, of course, is that we are so used, sometimes even out of routine, we are so used to follow map logic <coughs> that that we even use it for our spiritual destinations. And when when we with the map and the destination Hey, there comes the getter, as I said on Friday, and takes over. Raquel yesterday in the, in the inquiry was sharing something about uh, her finding she didn't have a map. Wonderful. It may not feel wonderful, but in the end, that's the only way. So how can we approach our spiritual search with a fresh mind, not depending upon those grids? The key for me is simple, it's obvious, to take one step at a time and to be present for each step. Each step, another way of putting it, to be present with the immediacy of things. Let me share with you for a moment this uh, experience in the month uh, retreat, I mean, solitary. It was with 30 other people, or 20 other people, but uh, totally on my own. Retreat I did at the Forest Refuge until mid-November. I was there for four weeks and on the third week I had this dream that brought things together beautifully for me. I mean, it, it, it really, it was a mind trying to teach me something. And he had Almost literally to do with a road map. I was driving or being driven, or maybe it doesn't matter because you know in a dream everybody is oneself anyway. So whoever it was, we were driving a car, or a minibus, or whatever it was, and a flood was coming and gradually the road began to disappear under the water. So, initially we, whoever was driving, was trying to guess where the road was (laughs) under the water. It wasn't visible anymore, you see. Forget it. At the end there was no no possibility. It was all a, a, a surface of a, a lake, an ocean, whatever it is, with a you know, structure of stone coming up here, stone coming up there. And we weren't floating, we went on floating. And that was it. That's very much how I felt that the details of life were not important anymore. That I was now looking at the transcendent space, a bigger space. Next, next day as I looked out the window and I see the fall leaves Coming down from the trees, floating down from the trees. I I've revived that experience of the space is time not just in the water but in the air, an empty space where things can just float and fall. And it's not describable, it's just a mood of the heart and the mind that allows to open up to the space. Of course, there's no no road to take, just to be there. But then, I'm, I'm repeatedly reminded of what St. John of the Cross said uh, a few centuries ago, five centuries ago. And I know I've (coughs) said this before but I'm going to read it again. This is uh, largely my translation with some help from T.S. Eliot who has Plagiarize that a little bit. <laughs> I mean, quite all right. But I think it's very pointed. He says In order to arrive at what we do not know, you must go by a way which you do not know. In order to arrive at what you do not fancy, You must go by a way wherein there is no ecstasy. Look at that, look at that. In order to have what you do not possess, you must go by way of dispossession. Of course, we keep holding on to things, Ah, my, mine, mine, mine. things that are kind trivial, kind of trivial, and that gets in the way of going to that which is not trivial. In order to arrive at what you are not, you must go through the way in which you are not. Beautiful, to me anyway. Let me close with the words of the Buddha that uh, to me sound, uh, resonate with St. John of the Cross. There's just a verse or two in the Dhammapada, a, a poem uh, attributed to the Buddha, probably correct And it's a poem about the one who has gone the full distance. That's his expression. The one who has gone the full distance. And he says, Their trail is like that of birds through space. It can't be traced. And so... I add, that's how our trail needs to be, without traces. Unlike birds, we need to learn to be free. Let's sit for a few moments.